Let us begin reading at verse 15 of Galatians chapter 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, we pray for your spirit to be among us this evening. We pray, Lord, that you would help us and help me to handle with care this, this great text of scripture that is before us. Uh, we pray, Lord, that just as the Apostle Paul was taken up with great concern for the Galatians and, and how he was so um, adamant and, and zealous for the truth of the gospel, we pray, Lord, that that same zeal would be in our own hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to grasp these truths and to hold on to them in our own personal lives and walk with Christ, and that we would hold on to these precious and great promises. And uh, help us to understand your word. Bless our time this evening. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. To be candid, I, I struggled a little bit with coming up with the title for this evening's message. Uh, Brother Russ was hitting me up and saying, I need the title for the bulletin. And I'm like, I don't have one yet. <laughs> And so I'm not sure yet the, the title really grasps what I'm intending to communicate, but uh, it will have to do. The, the thing is, is that I think Paul has finally reached in his letter to the Galatians the pinnacle, the key point to which he has been building up to. I think he has reached the hinge on which the whole matter swings. And he's been building up to this. He um, had, had heard somehow through some sort of news that the Galatians were being troubled by these uh, Judaizers who were pointing the Galatians, these new Christians, back to the Mosaic Law. And back to the Mosaic Law to achieve righteousness and right standing before God, and he was tremendously concerned, and he, he writes this letter and fires it off to the Galatians in hopes of, of correcting this. And 
Uh, he starts off immediately by defending first his apostleship, and then he, um, he immediately goes into what he's concerned about. He doesn't waste any time. Uh, he says something that probably caught a lot of the Galatians uh, off guard, where right from the very beginning, he pronounces an eternal anathema on these people that were troubling the Galatian church. In fact, many of the Galatians probably looked to these people in their church as spiritual advisors, as teachers, and were probably looking up to them. And suddenly Paul, they received this letter from Paul, and he has very, very strong words for them. And there's no doubt that these letters, as they were read in the in the churches of Galatia, it probably caused no little dissension uh, when it was first read. And I think that is uh, Paul's goal, actually, and, and his hope that that would accomplish that. He goes into, um, uh, first of all, uh, establishing uh, where his gospel comes from. He starts off with, with demonstrating that his gospel had uh, come directly from Christ. He had been revealed it directly from God, that he was not secondary in his revelation. He was not dependent upon the apostles. He discusses his own relationship with the apostles to demonstrate that he is not secondary in authority. And then he goes right into an encounter that he had with Cephas, Peter, in Antioch, where Peter himself was not walking in step with the gospel that, that no doubt Peter was preaching. Peter was preaching justification by faith alone for both Gentiles and Jews, but yet he was not walking in light of this great truth when he interacted with his Gentile brothers and sisters. And so Paul had to uh, correct him. And Paul uses this, this encounter with Peter as uh, a segue to what he wants to show the Galatians. Paul, as uh, the brilliant logician that he is, works off of this and then works logically through his arguments, uh, starting with this encounter with Cephas. In fact, this, this text right here is very uh, familiar and similar to, um, as Brother Russ has been preaching through 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul's logical argumentation demonstrating that the resurrection of the dead is a true fact. And he goes through his arguments in a very similar way. He engages in the same sort of argumentation here. And we will be looking at that. The last message I preached on Galatians, we focused on the doctrine of justification because Paul uses this word quite frequently in these verses that we will be looking at today. And so I wanted to make sure that we understood that before we started diving into the text. So this evening we're going to be working through these verses one by one. But just as a reminder, um, the, the way the word justification is used in the New Testament, it is used as a legal declaration a pronouncement by God that the person who is justified is declared righteous. Um, it is not that they are made righteous. 
and therefore once they do something unrighteous, they lose this righteousness. No, it's a legal declaration. It is an imputation of the righteousness of Christ, where the righteousness of Christ's active obedience is counted to us, is credited to us. And this is opposed to other views that would teach that, that righteousness is infused within us and we are personally and intrinsically made righteous. And we all know that as we go through our day-to-day life that we can act unrighteously. Well, what happens to that if we are supposed to be perfectly personally righteous? Well, there's no hope in that sort of a message because we all, as believers in particular, have had the, the, the law shed its light on our own heart and we've seen our inadequacies and, and failures and sins. And so, <clears throat> if it is indeed true that we are infused with righteousness and we have to remain so, there's no hope in that message. And that is actually no gospel at all. So it's very important for us to understand when Paul uses this word justification and what he actually means by it. I believe the text that we're looking here, verses 15 through the end of the chapter, and actually verses uh, 1 through 14 in chapter 3, are really where Paul comes down to the meat of what he wants to communicate to the Galatians. After this, in the book of Galatians, he deals with other very important issues, um, issues like who are the children of Abraham, uh, the Sinaitic covenant, how do we deal with the law, um, who are the recipients of of the promises made to Abraham, freedom in Christ, walking in the Spirit, bearing one another's burdens. These all, though, flow and come from this truth that Paul is establishing here. And While all of these are extremely important matters, in fact, I'm really looking forward to getting into uh, chapter 3 and and looking at covenant theology, which we talked about in Sunday school this morning. I'm really looking forward to that. But all of those things would not matter if you don't get this right. And so that's why this is so important. And so we want to make sure that as we go through here that we come to understand what Paul is trying to communicate to us. This passage seems to uh, just flow from his conversation that he had with with Peter. If you look at uh, verse 14, in response to Peter, he says, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? And then he goes on, We ourselves are Jews by birth. Now, where is he break from his actual conversation with Peter uh, to um, expounding uh, some truths to the uh, Galatians? And I think it actually does take place here between verses 14 and 15. Uh, some people make it a little further. It's kind of like one of those challenges like in John chapter 3, where did John the Baptist stop speaking and, and uh, the Apostle John start expounding on, on Christ? So it's maybe hard to tell. Uh, exactly where it breaks, but the reason I think it does break here between verses 14 and 15 is because um, I don't think Peter was preaching a false gospel. I don't think 
Paul had to remind Peter uh, on the doctrine of justification. What he had to address Peter with is Peter was not personally walking in step with the gospel that he preached. And so um, I think that he uses the conversation with Peter to directly flow into his primary and his main argument that he wants to convey to the Galatians. So let us, let us look at the first verse here. He begins off by saying, We ourselves are Jews by birth, speaking of, if he is speaking to the Galatians, speaking of himself and the rest of the apostles um, and other Jewish believers. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. It was very common for the Jews to refer to Gentiles as sinners and themselves as the people of God. And so he uses this language here because it was very common for the Jews to use this type of language. And it was probably also a means the Judaizers were using to try to convince the Gentiles that, in fact, they had to become Jews. They could not remain Gentile sinners. And so he points out the futility of the Galatians trying to become Jews to be accepted by God. He points out that he himself was a Jew by birth. And his own acceptance for God was not on the basis of his Judaism. If you remember back in Galatians 1.14, he points out how he was so zealous in his Judaism. In fact, that he even persecuted the church of Christ that he was extremely zealous for the traditions of the Jewish fathers. He points out back there, though, however, that it did not bring him peace with God. Instead, he was hostile to God. Paul needed the sovereignty of God to intervene in his life, to change his course of direction. His Judaism, his obedience to the Mosaic law, did not bring him any peace with God. As we read in our text this evening uh, that we recited together from Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been justified by faith and by faith alone and not by any of the works of the law. So we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified that is, to be declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So his point here is that neither Jews or Gentiles are justified before God in any way, but through faith in Christ alone. It applies to both. I mean, here the Judaizers were coming along and saying the Galatians had to be circumcised to be saved. But this is untrue, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Not by circumcision, not by church attendance, not by giving money to the poor, not even by obeying the Ten Commandments. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. We can only be justified by faith in Christ and faith in his works and not our own. We are only justified by the simple childlike faith and trust which was given to us as a gift from God. 
So Paul immediately attacks the primary teaching of these Judaizers. Verse 17, and actually verse 18, both, when at its surface, may look a little difficult to uh, understand what exactly is Paul uh, trying to communicate here. He says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a certain Servant of sin? Certainly not. What Paul is engaging here in verse 17 and verse 18 is in a type of argumentation called a reductio ad absurdum, meaning he's reducing the claims of the Judaizers to absurdity. He's saying that if we are found to be sinners after seeking to be justified by Christ, then Christ is of no effect. So these Judaizers were coming along, and they weren't saying don't have faith in Christ. They were saying faith in Christ is necessary, but they were saying it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't enough. You had to go back and do some of the law of Moses, or at least circumcision, in order to be saved. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, and we are still found to be sinners after doing that, then Christ is of no effect. In fact, Christ himself then would be a servant of sin, meaning Christ would be subservient to sin. He would be unable to overcome it. Christ's own work that he did on our behalf would be unable to make us righteous before God if what the Judaizers are saying is correct. We could not be made righteous by Christ. And Christ himself would then be... um, a minister of the law, a minister of sin. Because Christ, instead of pointing to his own work and his own obedience, would instead be pointing back to the law and saying, that is how you achieve righteousness. It would not be a new covenant. It would not be the covenant of grace. Instead, it would be going back to a system of works. And Christ himself would be subservient to sin. So I think that is what Paul is trying to point out here, is that certainly not. If this is true, then Christ himself's work is of no effect, and he can accomplish nothing that he has intended to accomplish and came into the world, the incarnation to accomplish. He is unable to do it because... He cannot overcome sin by his own obedience. The Judaizers have made law into grace and grace into law. They have no gospel, only hopeless, despairing news. Calvin says about this verse, it says, If while we seek to be justified by Christ... We are not yet perfectly righteous, but still unholy, and if consequently Christ is not sufficient for our righteousness, it follows that Christ is the minister of the doctrine which leaves men in sin. That's what the Judaizers ultimately were teaching. An absurd doctrine. One that provides no peace, no forgiveness of sin, no righteousness. Verse 18 He goes on to say, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
Well, what is, what is Paul saying here? Well, Paul is saying that if he now teaches that circumcision is necessary for justification, then he would be rebuilding what he had torn down by the preaching of his gospel. If we recall back when we first started going through the book of Galatians, I took you guys back to Acts chapter 13 where Paul preached his message in Antioch of Pisidia. And there he had, in verses 38 through 39, he had proclaimed to the Galatians, Antioch of Pisidia is in southern Galatia, he said, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So, if Paul is now agreeing with the Judaizers, and he's saying, yes, circumcision, you, you have to become a Jew, you have to become circumcised. Then he's going back on his entire message. He is, he is in essence, rebuilding what he has torn down. He would also be returning to the law, going back to the law, which had only proved Paul to be a transgressor. It had provided no righteousness for Paul. The law had only proven Paul and us, and only does, proves us to be transgressors. So Paul would be proven to be a transgressor because of the law, and also, was he telling the truth the first time when he had preached to them? He would be a liar. So if he rebuilds now what he had previously tore down, he would prove himself to be a transgressor. In verse 19, he goes, For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. It follows now from all that Paul has said that the law slays its disciples. Only death is found through the law. The law kills all those who attempt to achieve righteousness through it. For through the law we die to the law. The law is intended to point us to the righteousness through Christ and not by means of our own obedience to it. The law is a schoolmaster to point us to Christ. As Paul says later on in Galatians chapter 3, 24, he says that the law is a pedagogue or a guardian um, or a schoolmaster. It's designed and its purpose is to point us to Christ. It is intended to show us the futility of trying to achieve righteousness by obedience. We cannot ever be righteous enough. Only Christ can be for us. And so the law exposes us. It exposes our sin. It lays our heart bare before God and even before ourselves when we look into it. When we examine the law, in particular the moral law of God, it lays us wide open. It kills us. So, though I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Paul had died to the law as his means of righteousness, so that he could live to God in Christ. 
He goes on to expound on this having died to the law. He goes in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. For Paul, Christ was his vicarious substitute. Christ had died for him. And it was so personal that he could even say, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul is pointing out his personal union with Christ. I love how much of the New Testament, in particular the epistles, always talk about in him, in him. We are in Christ. For example, we see this in Ephesians chapter 1. And so Paul recognized his union with Christ and how he had been joined with Christ and how he had been crucified with Christ because Christ had died in his place. As um, it says in 1 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ takes upon our sin. He stands in our place. And we can declare, just like Paul does here, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul acknowledges that we still live in the flesh. We see this in Romans 7 and other places where Paul talks about this. But we still live in the flesh. We still struggle with sin each and every day. But we now live this life with faith in the Son of God who, I love how he starts off, who loved me. I think Paul was overcome by the fact that Christ loved him. In the, in the same way, when you read the Apostle John's uh, uh, letter to us recording um, uh, Jesus' life and ministry, he constantly refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think the Apostle John, just like Paul here, was overcome with the fact that Jesus loved him. I mean, we think of that children's song, Jesus Loves Me, but how precious that really is, right? Jesus loved me. Jesus loved you and gave himself for you and died in your place. And I think Paul was just overwhelmed by this. And so he, he says, who loved me and gave himself for me. He recognized that while we still live in the flesh, we now live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and died for us. It's incredible. Verse 21 is a kind of a summary of the core argument that Paul is making against the Judaizers. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The Judaizers, and, and frankly anyone who teaches anything in addition, in addition to the pure gospel, nullifies 
the work of Christ. Christ dies for no purpose. In the same way as he makes the point in 1 Corinthians 15 with the reductio ad absurdum saying, if Christ is not raised, our faith is just totally in vain. And I think the same thing applies here. If we add anything to the work of Christ that we do that makes is necessary in order for us to be righteous, then our faith is in vain. What, what are we trusting in? We're back to trusting in ourselves. And we nullify the work of Christ entirely. Adding any requirement to the gospel outside of faith alone in Christ alone nullifies the work of Christ. This is why the Reformation principles of faith alone and Christ alone were so, so important, and we cannot lose sight of that today. I know it's not emphasized in many churches, but we must hold on to that because it is our only hope. The Reformation was not about is faith, is Christ, is grace, are they necessary? The Mormons believe it's necessary. Roman Catholics believe it's necessary. That's not the point. The point is, are they sufficient? Can faith alone and Christ alone and grace alone, are those sufficient for our salvation? Or are they only necessary? We need to still do other things. This is why we cannot stop fighting today the fight of the Reformation. It needs to go on the principle of semper reformanda always reforming. We cannot let go of that. We must hold on to that. So in summary, for us to grow in our Christian faith, the only way that we can grow in our day-to-day walk with Christ is for us to understand and believe this great truth that Paul has been communicating to us. This is not just theological and doctrinal. This is very, very practical. We cannot have peace in our own day-to-day struggles with our own sin and with our own failures unless we have trust and faith in the righteousness of Christ. There's no hope otherwise. And we have this tendency, we have in our flesh to, to go back there all the time. Where we look at our own sin and we despair in it and we go, how, how can I be right before God? How can, how can I be right before God? We must turn our eyes back on Christ. Look on Him. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And then with confidence, turn from sin. Confess our sin to Him. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. But always look to Christ.
If it is true that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us, meaning counted or credited to us, it means that we cannot undo what God has legally declared. We can't undo it. It's done. It's finished. If we have been justified by faith, we will not become unjustified. We have been legally declared righteous by the sovereign, eternal God. And when he says something, it happens. Always. There's never a plan B with God. There's, when God declares a covenant promise, he always, always keeps it. If the alternative is, if righteousness has been infused in us to make us personally and intrinsically righteous, then the first time we sin after we have been made righteous, we then become unrighteous again and have to work through, and all systems are different, but uh, either some sort of sacramental system or some method of penance or something in order to try to regain our justification. That's not. That's not what Paul believed. That's not the gospel preached by the apostles. So, this truth that we looked at tonight is the hinge on which the whole doctrine of Christian religion swings on this. If we don't have this, then we have no Christian faith. So, if there is anyone out there, if there's anyone who says, well, you know, you say that there's no peace unless you believe this gospel. Well, I don't believe in the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, and I have peace. The only way that's possible is if you're self-righteous. Luke 18.9 records for us that he told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Once the law lays bare our own hearts, if we truly examine ourselves with the law of God, then we can have no peace unless we turn to Christ. It's the only place we'll find peace. You're not going to find peace by trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If the law has brought you death and has crushed your self-righteousness, then the only peace you will find is in Christ, in Him alone. Flee to Christ and you will find Him to be a perfect Savior. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the many blessings that you have poured out upon us, that you have so richly blessed us in Christ Jesus, that you have opened our eyes to this great gospel, this great truth, the truth that can bring us peace, peace in our daily life, and also true objective peace with God. And so we thank you for this, and we, we praise you, and we, we know that we will praise you for eternity for this. We will lift up your name, and we will, we will sing praises before the throne of God. And 
We just, we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we all leave this place and we go out back into the world this week and we deal with our daily struggle with and against sin and we, we work with unbelievers or we rub shoulders with family that don't believe and, 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 uh, and we struggle, oh Lord. I, just, I pray that you would remind us, point us again, turn our hearts that we may look back to Christ and always look to Christ and rest in Him. We pray that your Spirit would cleanse our hearts and our minds, help us to walk in holiness and in sanctity before you, sanctify our lives. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. And now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Okay, you're dismissed.